Come back to Colossians chapter 2, same passage that we read last week. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, As I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Amazing passage. King Solomon, about 3,000 years ago, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, writes, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. This is such a simple statement and yet so profoundly true, both on the negative as well as on the positive side. The issues and problems and temptations that we face today are the same as those of ancient times. Oh, they may look a little bit different. They may come in different packages. They might be wrapped up in different colored paper. But the core of our problems, the core of our issues, the core of the temptations remain the same. The same is true about God's Word. God's truth remains the same. Same yesterday, today, and forever. And is still absolutely essential and pertinent to the issues of our day today. You know, there are a lot of people who think that the Bible needs to be updated. You know, kind of to keep up with the changing times. But it doesn't. As we talked about last week, truth does not depend on the whims and emotions of people. The truth is the truth is the truth. It is solid, and it does not change. We know the song that goes, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is what? Sinking sand. That's basically what Paul is trying to get across to the believers in Colossae as he writes here. And therefore, what God wants the church of today to understand as well. And here in chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul is expressing his desire for the church at Colossae, which means that since this truth is inspired by the Holy Spirit, this becomes God's desire for us as well. Paul was so concerned about what was happening at the church as people were being swayed or people were trying to sway them by the nice-sounding human arguments of the day and of the culture, that he agonized over them. We talked about a little bit about that last week. He agonized over them, wanted to draw them back to the centrality of Christ, to the all-sufficiency of Christ, to the supremacy of Christ. 
He said in verse 1, I want you to know how hard I am contending, how much I am agonizing for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally, saying, when I see the difficulty that you're facing, when I see the attack that you're under in terms of false teaching, when I know the anxieties of living the Christian life in that situation and trying to walk the walk, I have a great sense of agony and struggle and striving over you when I think about what you're going through. And because of this, Paul lays out some very specific goals expressing God's desire for the church. Now last week we looked at the first of the five desires or goals that Paul shares. Uh, these are actually can be used as a checklist for every church. In fact, we can use that, this as a checklist for ourselves personally as well. He began in verse 2 saying, My goal is that they may be encouraged or strengthened in heart. And as we saw last week, that the term heart here in this context, in, and particularly in the Bible, has a reference to the intellect, to the will. It refers to the mind. The Hebrew didn't talk about the brain. He talked about the heart. And the heart was the area of intellect and will, learning information and acting then on that information. The will to act came from the mind. So heart means mind in this context. So he's saying, I want your mind to be strengthened. I want you to have strong minds. Why? Because the mind is the first thing that Satan attacks. He attacks with lies. Oh, they're good sounding lies. He's really good at it. And it can be very human, reasonable lies. But they're still lies if they don't align with God's Word. Satan, as Scripture tells us, is a father of lies. And as I said, he's really good at it. He brings to us false truth, false information, wraps it up in pretty paper, and assaults our mind with it, which then directs the behavior that responds from what we take in. Now, just to be clear, there are times when the word heart in Scripture is used in a general, non-technical kind of sense to refer to the total person's inner being. But when it's used in its technical sense in Scripture, it has reference to the mind or the seat of knowledge, which is basically the beginning of action. So it's absolutely necessary in order to be a powerful, fruitful Christian and have that kind of a life to have a strong mind. And the way our mind is strengthened as believer is by filling it with God's truth. That will then dictate a positive behavior pattern in our will, and then our emotions will properly respond to the truth. And the more we are in God's Word, the more we will allow the Holy Spirit our parakletos, our strengthener, to strengthen us in our spiritual lives. And he does that through our own study time that we have personally. He does that through strong teaching, through strong preaching. He does that through the body of believers as we gather together and build relations to, relationships together. And this is where I'm going to put a plug in for the home Bible study groups, a wonderful place to rebuild relationships, to get to know each other and understand where the hurts and the struggles are, to pray for each other and encourage each other. Getting together for our spiritual growth class in the morning, getting the teaching that comes, comes out. Folks, God created us for fellowship, for relationships, 
so that we can encourage one another. And that's part of what a Sunday morning service is all about. We need to be together. The Holy Spirit uses all these things to strengthen our hearts. Now, that brings us to Paul's second desire that he is wishing for the Colossian Christians. And the second thing that we should wish for ourselves, and that is that we be united in love. Strong in heart, united in love. And this, of course, is a beautiful balance to the number one. We don't want to get carried away with the intellect, making everything all intellectual. We don't want to turn Christianity into something that is coldly academic, because it isn't. The great beating, pulsing heart of Christianity is love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But do not have love. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He goes on to say, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. So here in Colossians, Paul says he wants their hearts to be strengthened, to be on solid ground. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and, very quickly he adds, and united in love. The King James Version uses the term being knit together in love. Sort of like a beautiful sweater made up of a, individual, a lot of different individual colored yarn that all blend together to make the sweater. You don't pick out one individual strand of yarn and say that this is what makes the sweater. They all together make the sweater. You take one out and you've got a hole. And then what happens? It starts unraveling the sweater. The same is true in the body of Christ. We as separate individuals are not the church. We together are the church. And we are held together, knit together, united together in love. Love for the Father and love for one another. And as soon as we begin thinking individually, as soon as we start thinking selfishly and separate ourselves from the body, we begin to destroy the body. Paul wants a one-mindedness of hearts that are united in love because that's what should hold us together. Referring back to verse 17 in chapter 1, you'll remember uh, Paul says, In Him, talking about Christ, in Christ all things hold together. And verse 18 says, He is the head of the body, the church. And He holds us, the body, the church, together through the Holy Spirit, our strengthener. That's why 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, But whoever is united with the Lord is one in Him in spirit. That's why 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. One, 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 united. You know, there's a basic positional unity that we all enjoy. We've all come to Christ in the same way, by His blood, by the cross. We've all been saved by the same method and by the same God. We are placed into one body by the same Spirit in the same way and indwelt by the same divine life in the same fullness as every other Christian. So there's a basic positional unity that ties us all together. That's God's love and, and which gives us eternal life. But Paul tells us in Galatians 3.26, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. 
For all of you were baptized into Christ and have been clothed and have been clothed and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's that positional unity that we enjoy. There is a oneness that is a part of every Christian's identity. That's who we are in Christ. But how does that then work practically? I think that's what Paul is trying to get at here in Colossians. The practicality of that positional unity in Christ. He says, my goal is that they may be what? United in love. That indicates that perhaps the Colossians were not really being united at that moment because that was his desire that they be united. He's talking about putting that unity into practice. Paul says, I want you to be practically united, experientially united, just as you are positionally. In other words, make your life match your position. He's saying, you are one in Christ, now act like it. Live out your oneness that's inside. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers. He's begging them, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. How is that even possible? If we truly have the mind of Christ, we talk about that a lot. We understand that truth. Yes, we believe that truth. And if we truly have the mind of Christ, we should be united then in mind and thought. I was reading one author, and he and he's wrote this. We have, to, we have to work on it, because basically speaking, we are one. But practically speaking, we have a lot to be desired. We don't manifest that unity. And that's one of the things that confuses the world. The Bible says that the world would know the Father has sent the Son of the church as one. And part of the problem that the world has, he says, in defining Christianity and who Christ is, is our failure to practically live out our unity. So how do we do that? It's an interesting verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Did you catch that? Keep the unity or guard the unity of the Spirit. You see, we don't have to create unity. Is that a novel idea? We don't have to create unity. Unity, the Holy Spirit has already created it. We just have to what? Guard it. We have to keep it. We have to guard that unity. How? By being a peacemaker. And the unity of the Spirit is guarded by the bond of peace, Paul says there in Ephesians. So how can we be a peacemaker? Well, look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, which we'll look at later on. But these verses here, starting with verse 12, says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, clothe yourselves with kindness, clothe yourselves with humility, clothe yourselves with gentleness, clothe yourselves with patience, bear with each other. Folks, that's the true definition of tolerance. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. 
Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on what? Love. Put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. We're back to being knit together in love. What then is a bond of peace? The bond of peace is love. He says, first of all, put on this, and put on this, and put on this, and put on this. And then he says, above all else, the key ingredient, the most important thing to do is put on love. Because love is what binds everything and everyone together. He says, oh yeah, but you know, I just can't love that person. Whose fault is that? It's my fault. That's an issue that I need to deal with. God, help me. Give me your love for that person. See, we are at peace with one another when we love one another. So Paul says, my burden for the church is that they be strong in heart and united in love. Thirdly, still in verse 2, his desire for the church is that they have complete understanding. My goal, he says, is that they may be strong in heart and united in love so that they may have full, the full riches of complete understanding. Now there's actually a logical sequence that Paul is following as he writes. When you know the truth in your head and then act it out in your life in works of love, you will then gain a great confidence and assurance of what you believe because it works. That's why he's talking about, that's what he's talking about when he says you'll have the full riches of complete understanding. Because you're not only hearing it or seeing it acting out intellectually, but you're watching it in operation. You're seeing it at work. And that in turn then builds the confidence in our understanding. If people, somebody would come to me and try to deny Christianity or try to get me to deny Christianity, they can try giving me all the intellectual arguments that they want but they're not going to sway me because I have seen what I believe in action and seen God intervene in health and in house break-ins, in, in carjacking, in, in political coups. In short, I've seen God at work. And that person is not going to convince me otherwise. Because, as Paul says in 2 Timothy Chapter 1, I know whom I have believed and am convinced. That's what Paul's getting at. We need to be convinced, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And what is it that I have entrusted to him? It's my life. Folks, there are a lot of Christians out there that Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, as those who are tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. They're the ones that we talked about last week who get caught up and swayed by all the emotional arguments that are out there. Look at verse 2 again. My goal, he says, is that they may be strong in heart, united in love, so that they may have full riches of complete understanding. One, one commentator paraphrased Paul this way. I want you to have a thorough, gratifying insight into spiritual truth, which includes the operation of it in a loving way in your life, so that you become solidly entrenched in the knowledge of truth, settled, confident, having full assurance of understanding. That's what Paul is saying. 
We receive the truth in our mind, our will is strengthened, and then it manifests itself in obedience to love, in love to others, and the result is a settled conviction that this is true. You know the other thing that's fascinating about this, particularly about the phrase complete understanding? Listen, true understanding doesn't belong to anybody but Christians. You ever thought about that? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person without the Spirit cannot understand in Ephesians 4.18, he describes them by saying they are darkened in their understanding. In Romans 1.31, he says they have no understanding. Why then do believers, why then do believers fall into the trap or actually want to believe their arguments? Paul says to us, I want you to have a settled understanding, a complete understanding, and that only comes from the Spirit of God. So what is it that he wants us to understand? Well, he tells us in one place in Ephesians 5.17, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. You remember in the first chapter of Colossians when we were going through that. In verse 9 he says, We have not stopped praying for you. We continually to ask God to do what? To fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may have a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. How do we please Him? By being united in love and being convinced of the truth. We need conviction. It all works together. Why? Well, he tells us that they may have full riches of complete understanding in order that, here's the why, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. He comes back to the supremacy or the all-sufficiency of Christ. You see, God could not be fully known until He was revealed in Christ. A mystery is unknown, right? But now the unknownness of God can be known and understood in Christ. You know, it's interesting that people don't want to acknowledge Jesus Christ. Why is that? You can talk about God to almost anybody. And that's okay. But as soon as you mention Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, the level of conflict, we were talking about conflict yesterday, the level of conflict rises, the, the, the heat rises up. Why? Who doesn't want Jesus Christ to be talked about? Who doesn't want people to know that he was defeated at the cross by Jesus Christ? Who doesn't want people to know that there is life in Jesus Christ? Who doesn't want people to know that no one comes to the Father but by Jesus Christ? Who doesn't want to know uh, that it's in Jesus that we can be transformed and changed? Paul says, I want you to know the mystery of God, namely Christ. And furthermore, he says, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He comes back to the complete understanding. There is no understanding without Christ. 
That's the all-sufficiency of Christ. Why does Paul say this? Because those are the two things that the false teachers in Colossae were attacking, the deity of Christ and the all-sufficiency of Christ. He says you have to start there. You have to have a settled conviction about the deity of Christ and about his sufficiency. I tell you this, he says in verse 4, that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. That was what was going on in that day. You have to have this settled in your mind or in your inner being. Part of Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 was this, and I pray for you that being rooted and established in love for God and for one another, you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, long, and high, and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of Christ. Paul says if that takes place, nobody's going to be able to come along and tell you anything about Christ that isn't true, right? Because it's settled. We have that full understanding. Now with the, full, with the understanding that Jesus is God, that He is deity, and that He is all-sufficient, and that we have all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge, out of that settled confidence comes every other confidence in our life. Because if He is who He says He is, then His Word is what it says it is, and I can believe all of it. You say, yeah, but you know, the verse says that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why, why did he hide it? Why is it so, fine, so, so hard to understand? That's not actually what Paul is saying at all. It means that they are hidden, but it's hidden from ev- for everybody else other than Christians. Because this knowledge is spiritually discerned. It's from the Holy Spirit. All we have to do, since we have the Holy Spirit is to go in there and pick up the treasure. It's like having your own gold mine, right? Your gold mine is hidden from everybody else, but all you have to do is walk in and pick up the treasure and collect it. But what's so sad is so many believers just don't go in to collect it. It's all there for the taking and for the understanding. 2 Timothy 14 says, Study. Paul is talking to Timothy, study to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. You can't correctly handle the word of truth if you don't study and get in and and find that treasure and find the understanding and the wisdom and the knowledge. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, he says. You see, we don't need Christ plus Anything else? We don't need the Bible plus the Book of Mormon. We don't need the Bible plus Mary Baker Eddy, if some of you remember her. We don't need the Bible plus so-called science. All we need is the Bible and the Holy Spirit. Listen to Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, a glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. Then he goes on to pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened 
in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul wouldn't be praying that prayer for us if it wasn't going to happen, if it was impossible. And that's exactly what he's saying here in Colossians. First, that Jesus is God, chapter 1. Secondly, here in chapter 2, he is all-sufficient. In Him is everything that man needs. In Christ, verse 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why is Paul telling them, and by extension telling us, this? Why is he so concerned that our mind be strong in truth, that, that we act out the truth in love to one another, and that we have a complete understanding that only comes through Christ and His Word? I tell you this, Paul says in verse 4. Here's his reason for saying it. So that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And folks, if we don't know God's truth and are not convinced that His truth does not change, we're in big trouble. So easy to allow our emotions to get the best of us and begin to go along with the fine-sounding arguments of culture. And pretty soon we start hearing that voice of doubt, did God really say? If God is love, why did He make them that way? If God is love, why did He allow this? Why did He allow that? You know, one of the greatest insidious lies of our time is, well, I was born that way. That's how God created me. The only truth in that statement is that we are born in sin. Everyone is born in sin, as were we all. Folks, that's why Christ came and died on the cross for us. So we can be forgiven and transformed. And He can only do that if He is God and if He is all-sufficient. If you think about it, that's the basic attack of all false systems, isn't it? They'll deny two things. They'll deny the deity of Christ, and they'll deny His sufficiency to save. You've got to do this, 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 this. They all have their things that you have to do. And who do you think is behind those denials? Listen, anything that reduces Christ to less than deity or anything that adds anything to his saving sufficiency belongs to the lying activity of Satan. It's exactly what Satan did in tempting Jesus, if you think about it. Twice he started out, his first two temptations, if you are the Son of God. He was trying to make Jesus doubt his own divinity. Throw yourself down, God will save you. Tried to get him to doubt his all-sufficiency. So Paul desires the Colossians and all Christians to resist the, the seductive teaching of Satan, and Satan never gives up. The only way to resist that is by having a settled conviction, deep down confidence in God's Word. It's interesting that Paul then encourages the believers there in Colossae in verse 5. He says, For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. That seems out of context, doesn't it? After Paul is saying, do this, do this, I want you to do this. 
You know, when Epaphras came to him in prison, he didn't say, Paul, um, all the believers have already gone astray. And I, will you write to them and try to draw them back? No, they were holding strong, but they were being bombarded by the fine-sounding arguments. And they were probably beginning to question, like so many Christians today, beginning to question the truth. And Paul is encouraging them by saying, hang in there, I'm proud of you. Stand strong in your convictions and get stronger in them. I'm pleased, he says, how firm your faith in Christ is. That's a good place to be. Don't be moved. Don't be moved and and convinced by these arguments. And that word of encouragement is for us here at Sile as well. Stay strong in the word. Don't allow the fine-sounding arguments of our culture sway us from the truth. So he says, in order for that to be true, we need to be strong in heart, united in love, settled in understanding, and fourthly, we need to be walking in Christ. Verse six. So then, just as you can, you, excuse me. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. The Greek word. Yesterday, you'll understand that's my green coming out of me. The Greek word that is translated here is as live your lives is uh, peripateo, literally to walk, peri, to move about, pat, on feet, peripateo. So what Paul is saying is that if you're settled in Christ, if you're confident about Christ, you're firm in Christ, then he says keep on walking in Christ. Don't waver. Don't change. Don't allow the enemy to pull you away with his fine-sounding arguments. In everything, regulate your life to Christ. Sink your life to Christ. Conduct your life in Christ 24-7. Some of you remember when that slogan, WWJD, was very popular. What would Jesus do? We are to live our lives to conduct our lives like Jesus. Why? Because no longer I who live. (laughs) It's Christ who lives in me. There should be a difference. We should be maintaining a continuing pattern of life, pattern after Christ. That's exactly what we read in 1 John 2, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. Paul then wraps up this section with four participles. Ben's an English teacher, loves grammar. I hated it, just on the record. But he says in verse 7, Continue to walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Now, the verb tenses, I'm going to be a little bit of a grammar, grammar, Person that does grammar. (laughs) The verb tenses that he uses become very important in understanding the truth that he is trying to convey here. First of all, he says, you're rooted in him. He's using the perfect participle, which gives us the meaning, having been rooted. Since you have already been rooted in him, you need to walk in him. Secondly, you're built up in Him. Here he uses the present participle, which gives a sense of being built up. You have been rooted, and you're being built up as you walk in Him, as you live in His light, which is in obedience to His Word. 
Acts 20.32 says, Now I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, which can build you up. That's what the word of God does. Folks, just as there's effort in bodybuilding, there's effort in building ourselves up in Christ as well. We're told in Jude, verse 20, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. What then will be the result? You will be established in the faith. That's a present passive, which means you will become established. God will establish you. It's a promise. The Greek word here means to make firm, to establish You see, if we are rooted in God's Word, standing on solid ground, we then are built up, we become stronger as we put His Word into practice in our lives. And as we do that, God will establish us in our faith, which then cannot be swayed. Though the waves, using a different example, though the waves of fine-sounding arguments buffet us from all sides, we will stay the course. We will not be moved because we will be firm and established in our faith, we'll be settled in our conviction. And then there's a final thing that Paul mentions here, and it actually serves two purposes in our outline that we're following. It's a fourth participle Paul uses, but it's also the fifth desire for the church. Strong in heart, united in love, have complete understanding, walking in Christ, and in response to all of these, we are to be overflowing with thanksgiving. The participle is in the active voice. It's what we should be in the process of doing. We should always actively be giving thanks. Not only just giving thanks, but overflowing with it or bubbling over with thanksgiving. There's a kid's song that I as a kid, my wife didn't know this song, but uh, I as a kid used to sing. Maybe (laughs) it's bubbling, it's bubbling, it's bubbling. It's bubbling, it's bubbling, it's bubbling in my soul. I'm singing, I'm laughing since Jesus made me whole. Folks don't understand it, nor can I keep it quiet. It's bubbling, 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 bubbling day and night. Marcia knows it. I never knew where that song came from, but it's Colossians chapter 2, verse 7. It should be overflowing in thanksgiving. What should be the life attitude of a Christian? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for saving my soul. Thank you for the forgiveness of my sin. Thank you for the richness of life that I'm enjoying. Thank you for the life that I'm living in Christ and the joy that comes from that. Thank you for the walk that I am walking with the help of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for my guaranteed inheritance in heaven. Thank you. It's another old chorus that we used to sing. Sing it along with me. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich and free. There's truth in that. That was copyrighted in 1940 long time ago. But that's our attitude. That's what our attitude ought to be, uh, be, thanking the Lord. You know, we've heard all of our lives, and I'm going to close with this, that we're supposed to read your Bibles and pray, right? Read your Bibles and pray. Read your Bibles and pray. Read your Bibles and pray. Why? We've just talked about the reason. We do that to be strong in heart, 
We do that to be united in love with the Father and with one another. We do that to have complete understanding. We do that to walk in Christ. And we do that to be overflowing with thanksgiving. But we need to be in the Word. Father, this morning I thank you for your Word. The truth of your Word. And we can stand strong. We can place both our feet on it. And it will not move. And we will not move. Father, I pray that your word would become more and more real to us. And as we open your word in our, whether it's our personal devotional time, whether it's a small group time, whether it's our a spiritual growth class, whether it's in the morning service or any other situation, when we open your word, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just enlighten our minds because you are the one that illuminates You are the one that gives understanding and all the wisdom and knowledge of Christ is there for all that we need, the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that that would become a reality day in and day out for us and that we would live our lives accordingly and people will see that and see the change that it makes in our lives personally and therefore it's going to make between one another within our church body and people on the outside will begin looking at Sio Community Church and wow, it's a loving church. They love each other and they love us. Look forward to what you're going to accomplish this next year. In Jesus' name, amen.